Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. So how much do we really think about the technology that we spend so much time using? More specifically, have you ever really considered the possible effects that the use of technology, like your laptop, tablet, cell phone, etc., has on your reading, writing, and overall production of materials? On the show today, we will discuss how these kinds of technologies mediate the different parts of communication with respect to the reader, the author, and the object produced. To help us with our discussion today, we have Lori Emerson, who is an assistant professor of English and the founder and director of media of the Media Archaeology Lab at the University of Colorado at Butler. She's also author of the new book, Reading Writing Interfaces, From the Digital to the Bookbound. Lori, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight to talk with you. No problem. So perhaps we can start off with, could you give us a little bit of your background, how you came to get into the field and those things? Sure. Um, my background, uh, I guess it goes back to when I was an undergrad and I had a probably a very cute, naive desire to be a poet. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I, I thought maybe there was a, such a thing as being a poet full-time. Uh, I quickly learned that doesn't exist, went to grad school, and then I just started to be really interested in studying experimental poetry. And for me, that that turned into um, any poetry that had a, a material dimension to it. So either it was just focused on um, the sound of letters and words uh, in and of themselves, the look, the shape, the feel, the texture of language. Um and that led me to uh, digital poetry, which is what I did my PhD on, um, and just trying to think about whether and how digital poetry is interested in exploring uh, not only sort of the, the nature of letters and words themselves as little material entities, but also the, the ways in which we write mm-hmm. and how the digital computer affects um, what and how we write. Um, and then given that interest, that led really nicely into me find, uh, founding the Media Archaeology Lab, which is basically a collection of still-functioning um, old computers, uh, old hardware, old software, so that um, people from the public, researchers, students can go in and think about how all these old technologies um, made possible certain kinds of writing, certain kinds of creation, and also made impossible mm-hmm. kinds of creation. Well, okay, I have two questions for, for you since you told us that. First of all, what is media archaeology? And the second question is, do any of the computers that are still functioning in the lab, on any of them, can we find Oregon Trail? 
<laughs> yes, we can. Uh, I've got a, a copy of Oregon Trail on five and a quarter inch floppy that works on our Apple IIe that's from the uh, the early 80s. So nice. So you should come and visit. Media <laughs> <laughs> um, archaeology, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting development in media studies. It came out of uh, the work of Frederick Kittler, who's a German media theorist. And it's interested in looking at, I guess I would say, the material dimensions of uh, technology in and of itself. So less interested in looking at how humans made technology and more interested in looking at how technology actually uh, shapes humans. You could say even kind of makes humans, I guess. So there's that aspect of it. It's also interested in going back and uh, trying to find ways to disrupt uh, the narrative of technological progress that we've all, most of us buy into. And it's really hard not to buy into the idea that um, everything is getting better and better and faster and faster. And it's all that's all part of the logic of, you know, having to replace your cell phone every two years or three years at most. Um, and so going back and looking at earlier developments in, in computing and thinking about how, uh, in fact, in some ways, computers from the late 70s or the early 80s did some things better than what our computers do now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just we don't have to think only about speed as being the only criteria for having a better device. Hmm. Okay. So reading Writing Interfaces, the book, it I was struck that it's it seems like a combination of both media archaeology and literary studies because uh, you considered, like, the poets – and, and you know, experimental writers and how they used this or these older, what we consider older technologies in ways that we don't really even think about anymore. Mm-hmm. So how did you combine these two fields? Is it a natural combination, do you think? I actually do, and I find it strange that I'm one of the few people that does these two things <laughs> at the same time. Uh, but, you know, so I think one of the, the, the big things I was trying to get across in the book and one of the, my big revelations just personally in the last five years or so has been that you can really think of literary studies as enacting media studies. Mm. You can think you can think of writers as constantly performing studies of media. And uh, I don't know, when you, when you think about literary studies in that way, it just opens the field right up again, into all these incredible new possibilities for, um, for research and just rethinking the role of literature. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've just been really interested in thinking about how writers and artists in particular uh, have a lot to teach us about uh, the affordances of our technology because they, uh, more than anyone else, are interested in sort of really pushing the, the boundaries, the limits of what we think our machines can do, should do, can't do, that sort of thing. I don't so, know if that answers your question. Oh, yes, it does, of course. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, why... Now, you said you're probably one of the a few, one of the few who consider both of these areas together. I'm wondering why um, the book now, why reading, writing interfaces perhaps at this time in history? That is a good question. Um, you know what? I think it's, so I, in the in the book, I talk a lot about invisibility and that's 
that really became my my obsession for a number of years, just thinking about how um, we're told over and over and over again that the more invisible our devices become, the better they are, and that they, you know, the, the less we notice them, the, the uh, more effective that they are. And I just realized that such a dangerous and disturbing ideology, um, and you can really see it at work in particular with art and literature as it tries to grapple with how to create on machines that you can't see or machines that you can't get at their uh, underlying workings. Um, you know, writers trying to grapple with software that's closed, that's proprietary. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers trying to open up their machines and they can't because they've been hermetically sealed to keep people from uh, understanding what's going on, on underneath the hood. Um, so... I think that's why the book moves from the present to the past, because you can um, see, actually, a long lineage of writers interested in in undoing the workings of technology from the present all the way back to even Emily Dickinson in the late 19th century, Mm -hmm. thinking about how pen and uh, pencil and paper actually sort of determine what and how we're able to write. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps we should back up a little bit and because we're talking about reading, writing interfaces and the use of technology, but perhaps you can explain what are interfaces? Oh, yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, I guess generally I just think of an interface as anything that mediates between uh, you as the human and the, the, the thing that you're trying to write or communicate or produce. Um so maybe idiosyncratically, I think of the graphical user interface on our computers as an interface. I think of typewriters as an interface, right? It's, it's the, the, the machinery that mediates between you and what you're trying to communicate. Okay, great. Now, another, another word that you use um, quite a lot in the book is ubicomp or ubiquitous computing, which is, I guess, a phrase. <laughs> but I was wondering yeah. if you could explain that as well, because I, I think that's perhaps important to some, uh, somewhat, the majority of, of the book. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, I uh, chapter one is where I really get all worked up about the idea of invisibility and computing, and I think ubiquitous computing and wearables. It's that's sort of best embodies the values in computing of trying to make it, uh, trying to make computing invisible. So ubiquitous computing is just the desire to try to make uh, computing devices ubiquitous, to make them everywhere and to make them, in their words, seamless, invisible. Um, They're just embedded in everyday life, um, and they're often trying to sense information for you. and it's always framed as a matter of convenience that it's doing all these things for you, but the problem is that you can't figure out what it's doing for you, and you can't intervene, and you can't do things for yourself. Um, so that's been my big beef with ubiquitous computing. Yeah, so I guess a question that arises then is perhaps what's the big problem, and perhaps other people may ask this also, so you have a poet or a writer who has a computer, um, perhaps a very modern computer, or they're forced to get a more modern computer because of, I don't know, 
consumer pressure or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And so they're writing and they get the product using whatever software or whatever that they they need. So why consider that even more thoroughly as you're as you're doing in the book? Why I guess worry about that would be a question. Uh, I think um, I started to think about why it's worrisome by um, talking with some of my colleagues in the electronic literature community, mm-hmm. and these are these are um, authors who have been writing digital literature sometimes since the early '80s, and talking with them about how it's incredible that an entire body of work or sometimes an entire decade in that uh, mode of writing is inaccessible to us now because it was created uh, using proprietary software mm-hmm. um, and because of the, um, I call it an ideology, the ideology of planned obsolescence, the way you know uh, 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 um, computer operating systems are constantly being replaced and updated and outmoded. So... There's a, there's a real problem of access built into uh, the writing at, at every single level that I think is, well, it's something that we need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we can really intervene in it too much other than uh, just try to be aware of using maybe open source materials in our own creation. Um, but, yeah, that was that was one of my main concerns, yeah. I hope. That makes sense. Oh yes, it it definitely does. Now you you point out some of uh, some names in the in the book that people may recognize. You, you talk specifically about Emily Dickinson, who's a very well known American um, poet, and also some Canadians like B. P. Nickel and and those kinds of people. And what have you found um, with relation to the interfaces that they use? And uh, how it has mediated or did mediate um, their their writings. Well, I think uh, what, one of the even though the, the chapter on Emily Dickinson is the last chapter in the book, that was actually the first piece of writing that I did that really got me thinking about um, writers and their relationship to interfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out of my time spent at Buffalo working with some of the most well-known scholars of Emily Dickinson in the U.S., and one of them was Susan Howe. And Susan Howe um, is, is, a, is, a, is a real firm advocate of us looking at Emily Dickinson's manuscript poems as really the only way to understand what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I started to look at the manuscript poems, and I realized that Dickinson had this incredible way of adjusting her handwriting, the shape and size of how she wrote, and, of course, what she wrote, depending on what size of scrap of paper she was working with, um, or even what kind of scrap of paper. So, just recently, a book has come out that collects all of her um, poems written on the backs of envelopes, and she even has some poems written on telegraph slips, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um and you can tell, or I, I think anyway, that what she writes has been what what she wrote has been determined by by that uh, by that interface of say the telegraph slip or the size of the piece of paper. Um, e. Nickel too. I think I mean he was a phenomenal poet who wrote in so many different media that I think he almost more than anyone else 
was incredibly attuned to uh, the affordances of different media. And he was actually one of the first people to write a digital kinetic poem on the Apple IIe computer. Right. Um, and I started to look at the Apple Basic code and realized that he really was fascinated with um, experimenting with what the what the code could do for him, but also what the screen could do for him and experimenting with how letters could dance around the screen. He has one poem called uh, Off-Screen Romance that just has the words Fred and Ginger after Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and they just dance They dance around the screen, and it's really, really simple and charming. And yeah. So, you know, I, I hear you talking and reading in the book, and you, you also mention um, some Marshall McLuhan you know, philosophy or, or theories. And, and as you talk about how the writers and poets used or were aware of their media, I'm wondering how the McLuhan, or perhaps you could explain to the listeners, the McLuhan, you know, he's always attributed to the media is the message. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, wondering perhaps what your thoughts is with respect to what you've written and you've researched about how these poets and authors have used a different media to express, I mean, obviously the writing, but the media as the expression as well. Right. Well, I, I think that, um, so it's my, gosh darn, what is it? Chapter, chapter three. Mm-hmm. Chapter three, it, which I, I, which I talk a lot about Marshall McLuhan and typewriter concrete poetry. That's, I think, a great example of how poets, especially in the late 60s and the 70s, um, were reading Marshall McLuhan. And even more fascinating, Marshall McLuhan was reading them. And uh, in some of his lesser-known works, he's actually writing about uh, concrete poetry and visual poetry and the way in which it expresses how the, the medium is the message. Um, because these poets were not... They were not writing lyric poems. They were not describing a scene, or like maybe a beautiful meadow, or they were not describing an internal state of bliss or sadness or something like that. They were actually, I think, writing out the the noise or the capabilities of the typewriter. So um, there's this incredible 10 to 15-year period, especially in Canadian poetry, where poets are... Um, you, using the typewriter in crazy ways and breaking the carriage, uh, playing with the typewriter ribbon, uh, typing over so that you get uh, just typewriter noise, basically, as a way to sort of express the typewriter as a medium in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, for, for a lot of um, books, you talk about writers and poets and we talk about Emily Dickinson and, and, and BP Nickel again, and perhaps people who are really, I guess, well-known writers, like that's their profession. What about um, what the computer typewriter, um, you know, tablets do with respect to writing and reading for us regular, <laughs> you know, regular folks? Is there, oh, yeah. Are there implications for that as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I, I teach an intro to digital media class almost every single semester, and we always spend some time talking about what difference it makes 
for you to handwrite a letter, let's say to your grandma, mm -hmm. versus emailing her, versus telephoning her. And it's it's funny. It's obvious to them, like, well, yeah, I, it's totally different when I write her a letter and I say different things and I express myself differently. But for some reason, um, our culture uh, tells us to ignore those differences. But then they start to pay attention to it and they start to recognize that how... Um, the word processor is something that's so utterly embedded in our everyday lives that we never even think about how it, too, frames how and what we write in the same way that handwriting does and the same way that typewriting does. It's mm -hmm. just for some reason it's become totally invisible. And so um, I think the trick is to try to find ways to defamiliarize that most invisible piece of technology um, and one person that I I, uh, I have them read every semester is uh, somebody named Matthew Fuller, and he wrote an, uh, an article on Microsoft Word and the way in which you can do a study of the menu bars, the the you know the thousands and thousands of templates and commands, and how there's this overwhelming amount of choice in Microsoft Word, which actually oddly has the effect of giving taking choice away from you, mm. if that makes sense. It's so much choice that you never actually have the ability to um, make anything. All you do is choose between predetermined uh, choices, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it absolutely affects all of us. Um, it's just that we aren't aware of it or we don't have the luxury to be aware of it. I think there's something to be said about having the luxury of paying attention to your 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 tools, um, because I always think about typewriting. The, the best typewriters are the ones that never think about the interface of the keyboard, right? Mm -hmm. Your fingers just fly. It becomes invisible, and that's what makes you a really fast, efficient, good typist. If you start thinking about every little tiny little interaction, then all of a sudden you can't do anything anymore. Um, so anyway, uh, but nonetheless, I think it's important to give us some thought to add a little bit of friction to the interaction. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you just said something um, talking about defamiliarizing themselves as far as the students with the technology. And I was wondering, like, how would a person go about defamiliarizing themselves with technology so that they are, you know, or become at least a little bit more mindful of what they're actually using or doing? Yeah. Um, I don't know what the what the best way is, but mm. I I find that actually using the old machines in the media archaeology lab is pretty awesome for accomplishing just that thing. Um, going back and using totally obsolete hardware, obsolete software to get a sense of how things could have been and also how things could be. So I, it's really important to me to try to. Uh, give people the opportunity to imagine things otherwise rather than just feeling like they have to passively accept everything that's been passed down to them and everything that's given to them. Mm -hmm. So going back and looking at, I mean, we have this wild computer in the lab called an Altair 8800, and it's from 1975, 1976, and it looks nothing like what we assume a computer should look like. Mm -hmm. It's a giant box with uh, switches. It's an 8-bit computer, so it has eight switches. Up is a 1, and down is 0. And 
for a good number of years, people who use computers actually programmed at the level of ones and zeros using switches, and the output is these flashing LED lights. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's fascinating to me to think about how computing could have been if it didn't involve uh, using a keyboard mm-hmm. or a mouse mm-hmm. or a screen. Um, but it's also fascinating to think about how that process of programming at the level of zeros and ones is exactly what's going on underneath all of our machines. It's just that we don't have access to it, we can't see it, and we don't understand it. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that return to the past can be extremely useful for defamiliarizing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you wanted the audience or anybody really to know one thing or two <laughs> about your book and... Um, about the the whole idea of reading writer interfaces as a whole, what, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I think probably two of my um, I don't know what the word is my hobby horses. Two 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 of the things that I get really worked up about uh-huh. is uh, invisibility used as a as a positive thing in computing, as a positive way to describe how your computer should be, and also user friendly. I get really worked up about this idea of uh, how our computers are user-friendly um, because I think this is, is it's a, a, a total fiction. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea of the user-friendly according to a small group of, um, you know, uh, designers or programmers in Silicon Valley and that we're actually all having to uh, adjust ourselves and adjust our, our bodies and our way of thinking to somebody else somebody else's notion of the user friendly, which actually often isn't particularly user friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that that goes along too with the, uh, another word that gets used a lot in that same cluster, which is intuition. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you go back and God help you if you actually do this, but if you sit down and, and watch the the YouTube videos of all of the iPad launches and the iPhone launches, you'd be amazed at how many times they use the word intuitive. Um, but I always wonder, like, who, whose sense of intuition is this? Because it's certainly not mine. Um, and the people that it's made for, which sometimes it seems like it might be the people who are in their 50s or their 60s who maybe don't feel comfortable with computers. Apparently, maybe the iPad is supposed to appeal to them, but even they can't figure out how iPads work. Um, so I just find it, I find the user-friendly, invisible, intuition, seamless, all those things, very, very coercive terms. And I think that's, that's, those are some things that I'm working through in my book, um, by looking at writers and artists and how they're disrupting those ideas. Mm-hmm. So, Lori, what's next? <laughs> um, my next project I'm calling Other Networks, and, um... It's really, methodologically, it's a continuation of what I did in reading, writing interfaces, but this time it's looking at networks. So I'm really interested in how uh, we just refer to the Internet as this homogenous thing that uh, suddenly popped up in the early 90s with the so-called invention of the World Wide Web by Tim Mm -hmm. Berners-Lee. And I'm interested in going back and seeing how before... The, uh, the dominance of the World Wide Web, there were thousands and thousands of different networks 
um, all with different affordances, totally different ways of operating, but also had different ways of creating a sense of community um, and often creating local communities of users because they were all operating on phone lines um, and nobody wanted to pay long-distance phone charges, so they were often you know, communities of local users mm-hmm. um, interacting with each other on these, on these uh, funny little networks. Um, so I'm interested in that, and I'm also interested in sort of rewriting the history of the Internet to show that um, we've got a really weird, lopsided history of the Internet that always goes back to the U.S., um, when in fact there are so many uh, fascinating, important networks um, all over the world um, in Chile in the early 70s, um, across Canada, in France, in the U.K. Um, so, yeah, that's the next project. Great. And so where can they find more from you? Do you have a website? Um, do you tweet? I do. I have, yeah, uh, I have the whole shebang. So <laughs> laurieemerson.net um, is where I post a lot of my work. And uh, I'm a pretty avid tweeter, at Laurie Emerson, L-O-R-I-E-M-E-R-S-O-N, and Facebook, too. Great. Now, they can find the book in on Amazon and anyplace else? Um, yeah, I think pretty much everywhere. You can order it directly from the press as well, University of Minnesota Press. All right, great. Now, are, do you have any parting thoughts for... Parting thoughts. <laughs> I can't think of any. I wish I did. <laughs> That's great. But this has been a, a great discussion and a great thing to, to think about, reading, writing, interfaces, from the digital to the bookbound. Thank you, Lori, for coming on the show today. I have been Jasmine McNeely, and that was New Books in Technology.